glad you're not using this. Good morning. How is everybody? At 9.08, Brenda and I didn't know whether there was actually going to be a Roman study happening, but I said, let's just wait till 9.30. Poof. We all show up. So this is our, um, we have no Bible study next week because everybody's either going to be, no, Star's already shopped, right? I haven't for Thanksgiving. Have you already shopped? I haven't shopped yet. But we're going to be cooking. I was going to say some people are running out to the store Wednesday, but that's, that's not, that's not people in this room. I know a few people like that. I'll shop before. Anyway, so we will not meet next Thursday, um, uh, or Wednesday. <laughs> and the, we'll resume the 28th and then we'll meet one more time. Okay. So this time, nothing next week and then two more times and then we'll conclude for 2018. Um, we will resume, I believe it was January 8th. So when you come on January 8th, you'll receive your next book, booklet. And you don't, if you registered for the year, you paid for both booklets. And um, if you have friends who might be interested in participating, you know, invite them. They can come and be with us for the second half. So that's all the announcements I have for now. So why don't we just jump in? Oh. What's that? It's the ninth, not the eighth. Thank you, Karen. Just a trick, what? Just a test of the emergency broadcasting system. All right, let's pray. Father, good morning. It is so good to be in your house. I love the fact that over in the event center, our dear friends, Charles and Susan Robinson, are doing their Native American presentation to the kids. I pray you bless them. I pray that um, this continue to be a very welcoming place to them. Um, Lord, thank you for our church and all the evidences of life. Lord, we give you um, this morning, we give you this study. Again, we ask that you come and meet with us and affect your change and transform us into your true people, the way you want us to be. And thank you for loving us the way we are. I pray for David. I pray you bless him. I thank you for him. And I pray for uh, the, the teaching of the word this morning and that you would soak his own heart in these words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, Diana. Yes, sir. Before you get out of there, uh, tell them a little bit. Give them the two-minute postcard version on Advent. On Advent. Advent's oh, yeah. not far off. So one of the things we did last year, which was really special, is we... Um, we really tried to make every Sunday of Advent something memorable. You remember the snow globe in the courtyard? This year we're having a giant Advent wreath, okay, that'll be in the courtyard, and it's a living Advent so that the, the candles, you know, if you have traditionally used an Advent wreath, you know that each candle represents a part of this, this story of the coming of Christ, the prophecy candle, the angel candle, the shepherd candle, and the Bethlehem candle. And so we will have actors uh, who will be Isaiah and an angel, and we'll have little and big sheep um, and shepherds, and then a live nativity on the 23rd. The whole series is called A Thrill of Hope, from my family's favorite Christmas hymn, um, A Holy Night, which was originally written in French. Did Indeed. You- Yes, Joyeux Noël. Joyeux Noël. That's right. And Joan oui. Baez actually sang it in French. Yeah. Did you know that? Yeah, she's 
Beautiful. I love that. And so every week uh, there will be a corresponding theme from a line of the hymn corresponding to the candle. On the third Sunday of Advent, we'll have our cookie reception. Last year, we had 3,000 cookies homemade (laughs) on campus. No kidding. It's fantastic. It was the loaves and the fishes. Even uh, Room in the Inn and everybody else had some. So then the last Sunday of, this is after Christmas, Fat Pants Sunday. Elastic waistband, baby. Right? And bring your 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 gifts that you kind of want to share. Sunday, baby. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. Bring your leftovers, and it's a great fun little swap. So bring something, take something. That's the thirtieth. So there you have it. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. That that's excellent. Do we do we pray in French now? Is that what we, you want to you, you going to lead us? I don't I don't want to show. Merci au père. Yeah, okay. Now we won't go there today. Hey, I could hardly wait because I want because we're in Romans 11, which uh, means we're in the home stretch here. You know, so and I love this section of of uh, scripture as well. So very very much, and uh, thrilled to be able to share it with you this morning. And so in your study guide, you want to be on page 44. And following along there. Um, so one of the, again, just a, a, a particular background issue I want to keep before us, keep reminding us of, in terms of the people who are first hearing Romans read to them. They're, they're, they're in this congregation in Rome, and they're hearing this. Let's remember all these Jewish people coming back to Rome, reintegrating into the life of the Christian church there, um, so it's a, a mixed congregation of Gentiles and Jews, predominantly Gentiles. And this issue of how the Gentiles, the Romans, viewed Jews in general, uh, and then how they received their brothers and sisters who were Jewish uh, as Christians. Uh, these are categories which are kind of hard for us to step into because we we see this radical dichotomy between there's Christianity, a religion called Christianity over here, and a religion called Judaism over here, and those categories didn't exist when Romans is written. That's not that that was not the situation. You had the hope of Israel, the Messiah of Israel, who had come to save the world, save Israel and save the world. And Jews believed in the Messiah, and many didn't. And now the whole world was believing in him too, and they were being integrated into the story of Israel. And uh, even the Roman authorities didn't view the Christian church as something other than Judaism. It was a form in their eyes as they looked at it of the Jewish people. And it's, it's only as the years go by, especially over the next 20, 30 years when Jerusalem is destroyed, that there's a real parting of the ways, and these are seen as very different entities. So, so uh, the, the period of time between 063, 64 with Nero and culminating in 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem, that's when you see this, this beginning to move apart. But at this point, you're really looking at a situation in which you have a, a community of people in Rome who are called Christians, but they're largely Gentile, which is in some ways shocking and surprising. Equally shocking and surprising is the fact that there are so many Jews who don't believe that the Messiah that has come to Israel is in fact the Messiah. Only some have. And so Paul's dealing with the mystery of unbelief, and he's also dealing with this underlying reality of how these people find each other again. 
Remember, under the emperor Claudius, the Jews were banned from Rome because of, because of riots which took place in Rome over, he calls a certain figure, Christus. So the conflict within the Jewish community over the Messiah, over Christ, Christus, is uh, something that was vehement. And it led to the Roman authorities going, just, you guys got to all leave. Get out of here. So all the Jews are banished. Roman emperor decrees only lasted as long as the life of the emperor. So when Claudius died, uh, that decree came to an end. And the Christians begin, the Jewish Christians begin to come back to Rome. And they're reintegrated into the life of that community of people. That absolutely has to be in the forefront of our thinking when we tackle Romans 9 through 11. So think about it. In terms of people sitting there listening who are both ethnically Roman and Jewish, all right, and they're listening to how God's purpose is unfolding. So chapter 11, verse 1, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So one of the questions that Paul's putting out here in this diatribe fashion is he's anticipating from everything he's saying, well, well, has God rejected his people? And what's Paul's emphatic answer about that? He has not rejected his people. So he doesn't say that the people of Israel are no longer God's people. He says, no, that's not the case. They're still his people, and he has not rejected his people. So I want to draw your attention to some verses that kind of summarize the whole of 11. So if you have like a highlighter or a pen or something, I want to just draw your attention to a few key verses which are going to shape the entire discussion. The first one then is verse 5. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. So he's talking about Israel. Talking about the fact that, as he's been discussing in 9 and 10, there's a small number of people who believe in Jesus as the Messiah. A majority of Jewish people did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. A small number did, including Paul. And and we'll get into the nature of that, that remnant. But he calls it a remnant. There's come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. So all the stuff about election and foreknowledge and so on that we've been looking at in chapter 9 and chapter 10 is primarily having to do with God's choice of Israel, his choice of a remnant at the time of Jesus, the way in which even unbelief and the rejection of Jesus unfolded in the cross so that the salvation of the world would take place. But there is a remnant. And then look at verse 22. Verse 22, behold then the kindness and the severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. So there is a stern warning about judgment. What's that in reference to? What's the kindness and severity of God in reference to? Well, it's in reference to very specifically the sin of pride, of pride. And that is seen a few verses earlier. And again, we'll we'll get into this. He says in verse 18, don't be arrogant toward the branches. If you are arrogant 
Remember, it is not you who supports the root. The root supports you. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the Gentiles in the community. Who are these, as he'll, we'll look at, wild olive branches that are grafted into the tree of Israel? So how many of you would count yourselves ethnically, Jew, ethnically Gentile? How many of you are ethnically Gentile? Yeah, I am. I mean, I'm born in Illinois, right? Okay, so uh, that's official Gentile territory right there. Okay, northern Illinois, outside of Rockford. Okay, grow up in a soybean field in Indiana. That's a Gentile kid right there. Okay, so now what's happened? What's happened? God has grafted me into something. He's grafted me into a tree. And the, the well, what's the tree he's grafted me into? What is the tree? It's, it, it's Israel. He's made me part of Israel. I was a wild olive branch and he's grafted me in and we'll talk about that. So again, this is very important for us to get. A lot of times people want to say, here's the, here's the Jesus tree and here's the Israel tree. There are two trees. There are not two trees. There's one tree. There's one tree and the tree is called what? Israel. And you crazy Gentiles have been what? Grafted into it. So no Gentile can look at the Jewish tree that they've been grafted into as a branch. No branch can boast over the root. No branch can look at the tree and go, what are you? Because it is not you, O branch, that supports the root. The root, what? Supports you. So all of the story of God in the Old Testament, what you call the Old Testament, I just like to call it, I personally prefer to call it the First Testament. Because when people use the word old in contemporary English, they usually mean by that no longer relevant. Right? So, but that's not true. Um, so we need, we, we need to understand we're grafted in. And you can't be arrogant. If you are arrogant, he, Paul says, and you boast against, then you are in, you are in danger. You're in danger. All right. A couple other verses here of real significance. 25 and uh, 26. I don't want you, brothers, to be uninformed about this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and thus all Israel will be saved. So has Israel been, this is going back into the words that Paul's used in Romans 9, has Israel been hardened? Yes. But what kind of hardening is it? Well, two words. It's partial. It's a partial hardening. Has all of Israel been hardened? Well, no, because Paul is part of what? A remnant. Okay, so it's partial. Secondly, it's temporary. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until, don't miss that word until, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. So what Paul tells us in this text is that the hardening of the heart of Israel, which has happened so that the world could be saved, is partial and temporary. This is not a permanent state of things. So we live in anticipation of a new day, which is yet to dawn. So all of that sets the stage for the discussion here in Romans chapter 11. All right. So God has not rejected his people. Has he? Paul says, may it never be. Now, when I talk about the word Israel, and I'm 
put a paragraph about this at the top of page 44. We need to be really clear here. We're not talking about a piece of real estate. When, when people use the term Israel because of the contemporary political situation in which we live, people often and understandably refer to a nation state in the Middle East. That's real estate. That's some lines on a map. That's not the way Paul's using the term. Paul's using the term to refer not to real estate, but to people. Okay? The very first Israel is a single individual who wrestles with God. Who was that? That's Jacob. Jacob wrestles with God, and then God changes his name, and he says, now you are Israel. So this name Israel referred at one point to one person, and then a people. Right Now, the land is named after the people. But in the context of Romans, we're talking about the people, not the land. So there is an eschatological direction to this. It addresses first century concerns, but it talks about life from the dead and all Israel being saved and the fullness of the Gentiles coming in. It talks about a current situation in the first century, but it says your situation in the first century is not permanent, It's living in anticipation of a day which is yet to unfold. So that means there's an eschatological dimension to Romans chapter 11, a future yet-to-be-revealed dimension to it. So we always live, and I think this is important for us pastorally and theologically, we always live with that tension of where we are and where we're going. Now, we do that personally. We do it personally. How many of you are not what you used to be? Right? Right? Good, right? But how many of you are not yet what you one day will be and wish you were? Right? So we're not what we were, but we're not what we're going to be. We live between the it is finished and it is done. We live between those two realities in the right now, the now and the not yet. And that's where we always live personally and it's where the church lives in history. So it's always a little difficult for us to live in that tension. And Paul, and Paul, that tension, that theological tension is, is underneath this text. You're living right now and you gotta deal with some stuff that's in the here and now, but I want you to deal with the here and now in terms of where things are going. Let the future begin to influence your present. Now let me just pastorally point something out to you. What typically What typically informs people's behavior more, the past or the future? Typically, it's the past. Well, you don't know what that person did to me. You don't understand what I did, and so we carry around shame. We carry around shame, we carry around resentment, we carry around bitterness, because we tend to be shaped by the past. But as Christians, we have to be shaped more by what? By the future. We are a people of hope. So it is by being a people of hope, we are Easter people, people who live in the tension of the now but the not yet, living in the hope of what is yet to come that really shapes how we treat each other here and now. You see this in C.S. Lewis's amazing sermon, The Weight of Glory, which I'll quote to you, I promise you as a pastor, at least five times a year. All right? I will, you cannot escape. I will get you. I will find you. Uh, because that, and I hope you read the whole sermon sometime. But in that sermon that he preached at St. Mary's Church in Broad Street in, 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 uh, 
or in, in, not in Broad Street, in the High Street in Oxford, he, he said, the people you meet every day are going to be one of two kinds of creatures, ultimately. This is why he says, you have never met an ordinary person. Never. The most boring individual, he said, you could possibly meet, will one day be a creature which, if you could see them now, what they will one day be, if you could see them now, you would either be tempted to fall down before in worship or recoil from in horror. And, he says, all day long we are helping one another towards one of those two destinations. Wow. So every person we meet, this is why he says we have to relate to each other, not in terms of just what's going on now, but in terms of where we're going. We have to let the future begin to inform our relationships in the present. So that kind of eschatological vision is deep in the heart of what Paul is talking about here. Now, he's going to take him to the past, and he's going to say, I want you to remember that actually what's taking place here is not new. And then he's going to take him to the future and say, see where we're going? So where we're going is, should begin to inform us. So he'll start with the history of things. There has come to be a remnant. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. I, too, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know... What the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God, and I want you to say the next two words with me, against Israel. Now, Elijah is a northern kingdom prophet dealing with Israelite idolatry. Who's who's the famous queen during Elijah's ministry? Jezebel. And the king? Ahab. All right, so this is a time of deep idolatry and wickedness in the land of Israel. And Elijah is sent by God, and he's, he is uh, warning them. He's pleading with Israel to come back to God. There's the great incident where he builds an altar and fire comes down and consumes the sacrifice. You know, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If God is God, serve him. If Baal is God, then serve him. And the prophets of Baal dance around the altar and nothing happens. And Elijah's over there making fun of him. Hey, what are you guys doing? Maybe your God's on strike. In the Living Bible it says, maybe your God's using the toilet. That's hilarious. I mean, Elijah is just really having a go at him. It's hilarious. And, and just laughing at him. And then he just, and they're dancing around, cutting themselves, going through all kinds of stuff. And after a long day of this, Elijah goes, oh, pish posh, move, move along. And he says, God, just to show them that you're God and you hear me, send the fire. And what happens? Kaboom. All right. So, so now after this great victory, you would think Elijah would be riding high. He's not. Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. And Elijah heads off into the wilderness and is completely alone and depressed. And he says to God, it'd be better if you would just take me now. Just kill me. I'm the only, now I love this line, I alone am left. I am the only, I am the sole survivor of the true faith. Now I know none of you have ever felt like that. I'm the, nobody loves Jesus the way I love Jesus. I'm the only true Christian around. What's wrong with all the people in my community? What's wrong with all the people in my, in my community group, the bunch of pagans? All right. 
That's how depressed Elijah was. And um, so he says, Thy prophets, Lord, have been killed, and they've torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they're trying to kill me. They're seeking my life. What is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself, how many? 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Hey, Elijah, you're not the only one. There are se- Actually, I've got 7,000. Now, 7,000, quite frankly, is not a lot. If you think about the whole population of Israel, 7,000 is not a lot. But it's still 7,000. Elijah's not the only one. What would you call 7,000 out of the whole population? Well, you might call it a remnant. That's Paul's point. God has not rejected his people. He's never rejected his people. But historically, historically, unbelief in Israel is not exactly new. There have always been believers and, frankly, unbelievers in Israel. But there has always been a remnant that's preserved. In the same way, then, verse 5, there has come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. That's about as clear a statement on the relationship between being right with God on the basis of his grace or being right with God on the basis of what you do, your performance, as you can possibly get. If you combine your works with grace in any way, you negate what? Grace. It is either all grace or it is not grace at all. So it is by grace and it is by grace alone. That's where one of the solas comes from in the Reformation. You know, sola fide, by faith alone, right? Sola scriptura, scripture alone, is the way in which God reveals himself authoritatively and completely for the church for all time. And here's this, sola gratia, sola gratia, by grace alone. It's only by grace, not by grace plus works. What then? Verse 7, that which Israel is seeking for currently now, it is not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Now, that's all a reference back to chapter 9. Now, remember, this hardening which has happened, is it permanent? Is it permanent? No. Is it total? No. It is partial and it is temporary. Okay? But some, the remnant, are chosen by grace. What about the rest? As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. And let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs Forever. Those are hard words. But I want to take you to Matthew 13. Come over there with me, Matthew 13, back in Jesus' ministry. And I I want to point out to you how, how this works. In Matthew 13, Jesus is teaching in parables. And, uh, 
One of the things I sometimes hear people say, and it's a, it's a big misunderstanding, is people say, Jesus taught in parables to make complex things simple. He, he was using these kind of, you know, everyday illustrations so that people could get it. Okay? So, after he teaches them in parables, in verse 10, let's see how good they were at getting it. Uh, look at 13.10. The disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to the people in parables? And Jesus said, because I'm trying to make it easy for them. That's not what he says. He answered and said to them, to you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, it has what? Not been granted. What would you call the disciples then out of the crowd? You would call them a, a remnant. You guys get this, but they don't. Whoever has... To him shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they don't see. While hearing, they don't hear, nor do they understand. And in their case, and in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says you'll keep on hearing, but you won't understand. You'll keep on seeing, but won't perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. What's the purpose of parables? The purpose of parables was twofold. The purpose of parables was to unfold the mystery of the kingdom to the remnant, but it was to obscure the mystery of the kingdom to those who were unbelieving. It was not to make things simpler. Imagine, see, just imagine this scenario where you come to church, you hear the preacher preach, and the preacher's objective is to make it obscure, to make the sermon unintelligible. Now, I know many of you have that experience anyway. That's a different issue. But I wasn't aiming at that. I was trying to make it plain. I'm sorry I failed you. It was unintelligible. But no pastor actually shows up on Sunday morning going, I'm going to make this plain for about eight people. And nobody else is going to get it. That's not how you do pastoral preaching. But the truth of the matter is that Jesus' teaching made certain things obscure and opaque, while it also opened things up to other people. So in Romans 9, in Romans 11 rather, if you come back over there, Paul is quoting from the same section of Isaiah, of course, Isaiah. And it's um, 29, Isaiah 29. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. Now, why did that happen? Well, in Isaiah 29, he tells us why it happened. And you can go back and read it later. And it's this reason. This is what he says. These people draw near to me with their lips, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their worship of me consists of tradition learned by rote. So what are they doing? They're going through the motions. Let me tell you one of the deadliest things that you can ever afflict you. Mere formalism. 
mere formalism. In mere formalism, you go through the religious motions. And by the way, before you go, oh yeah, the Anglicans, oh yeah, the Lutherans, oh yeah, the Catholics, you can get formalism at the hip, deep, and glory blood wash band worship center. Okay, because what people do is they sing, 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 rah, 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 and they go through the motions, but they can, you can do, this is not about a music style, you can go through the motions anywhere with your lips and remove your what? Heart. So don't think, don't think it's a particular form. Formalism can take on any form. Formalism deadens the soul. People go through the motions and they think that that's good, but it's not good. It deadens the soul. So God wants the heart. And what happens is this, what happens is this. When people do that, what does God give them? Now, Isaiah 29, um, here in Rome, when Paul quotes it here, he's quoting the um, Septuagint. He says a spirit of stupor, which sounds like kind of drunkenness. In the Masoretic Hebrew text, it says a spirit of deep sleep. People go to sleep. They're just sleepwalking. Their religion is sleepwalking. Here they're kind of in a stupor. They're awake but not fully conscious. Does that make sense? Sleepwalking or not fully conscious. That's what happens to people when they have a form of religion but they're not in contact with God in their hearts. And that hardens people. All right, so what's the result of this? What's the result of this? This means that God has been gracious in electing some, that remnant. And um, what he does here is he quotes three passages. Isaiah, and then he quotes the Psalms, and then he quotes uh, Deuteronomy chapter 29. Now I want you to notice this. In quoting Deuteronomy, in quoting the Psalms, and in quoting Isaiah... How much of the Old Testament is Paul bringing to bear as a witness? The entire Old Testament. The law, the Psalms, and the prophets. Or what they called the right, you know, the law and the writings and the prophets. So, so Paul, as a good rabbi, good Pharisee rabbi, he says, and all the Jews sitting in this congregation would have gotten this, the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. The whole lectionary is being brought to bear here. This is what God has said all the way along. No surprises here, okay? All of that is being brought to bear their lives. But again, is it permanent? No. Look at verse 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall. Did they? May it never be. So again, if you go back to 11 verse 1, has God rejected his people? What's Paul's answer? No, may it never be. They've stumbled. But their stumble isn't a permanent fall. And what does Paul say? May it never be. It is not a permanent fall. All right. Now he's talking about Israel. And again, we're not talking about real estate. Who are we talking about? People. Are these people believing or unbelieving? These are the unbelieving people. Their hearts are hard. They've been hardened. And they've stumbled, but is it permanent? No, it is not. Okay. May it never be. By their transgression, salvation 
has come to the Gentiles. Now, to make them jealous, I'll, I'll get to that phrase in just a second, but I don't want you to miss the middle of verse 11 because it is at the heart of the mystery that Paul's been talking about in chapter 9 and 10. Why did God permit and ordain Israel to reject the Messiah? Why, did, why was Jesus rejected? It was to create what? The salvation. So they say, no, we're not going to have that. We don't want him. We will not have this man rule over us. We reject him. We're not going to have him as king. They hand him over to the Romans. The Romans crucify him. What's the result of Jesus hanging on the cross? Okay, so let me put it, let me just put it to you in the form. How many of you are glad that Jesus hung on the cross? You go, well, yeah, I, I am, I am glad. It's kind of a weird thing to be glad about, but yes, I am glad that he hung on the cross. That would not have happened unless they'd what? Rejected him. All right. So it was necessary that he be rejected. All right. And the Romans do what they did. So God's ordained it. And he's ordained a remnant that will believe. But then what about all the people? What about all those people that were part of that rejection? Has God rejected the rejectors? May it never be. God has not rejected the rejectors. Can we just begin, can we just pause there for a second and think about the magnitude of grace? God does not reject the rejectors. Even the, okay, so Jesus is hanging on the cross and he says, Father, what? Forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Okay? God does not reject the rejectors. God forgives the crucifiers. There is a hardening, but it's partial, it's temporary. There is a remnant, and that remnant is a foreshadowing of what's to come. And that remnant is there as a sign to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles coming into the kingdom and rejoicing. Now remember, Jesus said, people are going to come from east and west and sit down with Abraham at the table, and the people of the kingdom who should have known, they'll be on the outside looking in. Now, if you're on the outside looking in and you thought you had a front row seat, what do you feel? You don't, you don't look at the people on the front row going, I'm so happy for them. I'm so glad they got the front row seat for Hamilton I thought I was getting. I'm just happy to hang out out here. You got any extra popcorn? That's not what you feel. You go, I had that ticket. That was my seat. You're upset about it. That's the idea. And so, so what are all these Gentiles, what are all these crazy Gentiles doing in our house? And God said, I always intended to save the world. My intention was always to save the world. Now, verse 12, if their transgression, what's the transgression? Let's stop there. What's the transgression? The rejection of the Messiah. If their transgression be riches for the world and their failure be riches for the Gentiles. So the rejecting of of Jesus, the handing over of Jesus, has produced what for the world? Riches. 
Okay. So if their failure produced riches, how much more will their fulfillment be? Okay, let's just stop there for just a minute. How much better is the world because Jesus died and rose again? How much better is your life because Jesus died and rose again? So I want you to hear what Paul's saying here. As good as, as much better as the world is because Jesus died and rose again, it's about to get even better than that because the rejectors have not been rejected and will be brought home. Whose story in the Old Testament does this remind you of? This is the Joseph story. His brothers did what? Rejected him. They sold him. He goes down into Egypt, falsely accused, down into prison, forgotten, interprets the bread and wine, rises to the throne of Egypt to feed the world, and then who shows up? His brothers. Now his brothers had taken home a robe to the father. They had taken home a torn robe dipped in blood and said, here's the robe of our brother dipped in blood. And then the father has to come and there's Joseph. And his brothers, his brothers say, man, man, we blew it. Don't kill us. And what does Joseph say? You meant it, but God meant it for good. To bring about the present result and to save the world. Because Joseph is feeding who? He's feeding the whole world. Because he's interpreted Pharaoh's dream about the, the, the years of plenty and then the years of, the years of want and famine. And they store up the grain. And now he's feeding the world. And he saves Israel. How does Joseph save Israel? Joseph saves Israel because Israel rejected him. And it was in their rejection of Joseph that Joseph was put in a position to ultimately save them. That's amazing, isn't it? The very same story is now being worked out in a greater Joseph. Jesus' earthly adopting father was named Joseph. How did God speak to Joseph? Did he send him an angel and speak to him in person like Gabriel spoke to Mary? No. How did, how did God speak to Jesus' adopting father, Joseph? In dreams. Oh. What's the name of the guy who owned the tomb in which Jesus was laid? Joseph. Joseph's tomb. This is the Joseph story from beginning to end. And the rejected the rejected are going to be reconciled to the one they rejected. Now that's part of the mystery of what Paul's talking about here. I am speaking, now he says, to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection be the reconciliation of the world, What will their acceptance be but what? Life from the dead. That's the future resurrection. What will their acceptance be? When when Israel, see what happened, when Israel appeared before Joseph, did they recognize Joseph? You go back in Genesis and read the story. 
Joseph recognized them, his brothers, but they didn't know him. Because Joseph, Joseph had gone goth on him. I mean, you know, he's wearing all the Egyptian makeup and stuff, right? You know, he's got all that going on. He, he didn't look like anybody they'd, they knew. And, and, and he knew them, but they didn't know him. And then he opened up his arms and he, and he said, I'm Joseph. And they said, oh, oh dear, or something like that, right? <laughs> all right. And, and, and now let, let me ask you something. How had Jacob been doing without Joseph? And when they took Benjamin in the story, he said, you're killing me. You're killing me here. And then when Joseph is reconciled with his father, when Jacob comes to Egypt, they go back to the land of Canaan and they get Jacob and they bring Jacob back with them to Egypt. And he sees Joseph. They fall into their arms. Jacob starts talking about that in terms of resurrection. Now I'm alive again. What happens when the people of Israel who are unbelieving are reconciled ultimately to their Messiah. What's going to happen? It's going to be the trigger for what? The final resurrection. It's going to be life from the dead. This is eschatological stuff. All right, so this is talking about where history is going. It will be, it will be, it will be resurrection from the dead, life from the dead. Verse 16, if, and this is where he talks about now the remnant and first fruits. And I've got to get across a very important point on this. If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, then the branches are two. So Paul has a dual relationship. He is an apostle to the Gentiles, but he is an Israelite. And he knows that they're going to be coming in and the reason for that is because of the principle of first fruits. He talks here about the lump and the whole piece of dough. Now the lump and the uh and the whole loaf, um the root and the whole tree are speaking about what's called in the uh in the scriptures the first fruit. So uh, let me let me put it to you this way. A portion of the whole is taken and set aside. And it is called holy. It is made sacred. Okay? So this little piece over here is taken off and set over here. It is holy. It is sacred. It is con- we, we could use a word like consecrated. But because it is consecrated, it has an effect on the whole. What is the effect on the whole? It makes it what? makes it holy. The first fruit makes the whole holy. Now, uh, you, there's no offering today, but you guys could learn something here. Okay. What is a tithe? What is a tithe in, in the Bible? Okay. A tithe is a first fruit. Okay. So here's how most people approach giving. Most people approach giving like I'll get to the end of all my bills. And if I got a little bit left over, then, then I'll chip something in. But in the Bible, where does tithing take place? Okay, at first. So the book of Proverbs says, honor the Lord from the first of all your increase. All right, from the first. That's Proverbs 3. It's in here. Why? Why Why does God say that? Is God nervous? I'm not sure I'm going to have enough money to pay my expenses. Is that what's going on? No. 
It's the principle of what makes things holy. When you set something aside first as holy, it does something to the rest. What does it do? It makes it holy. So when you, when you set aside a portion, that portion sanctifies everything. Now this is why, now see, here's the good news. This is why you should feel free to buy the boat. Because if you did set aside the first, then what does that do to the rest of your money? It makes it what? Holy. So somebody comes along and goes, I'm not sure you should have that boat. You can go, oh, listen, baby, it's a holy boat. This is a holy boat and I'm sailing it on a holy lake. Because I set aside the first and the first made the rest what? Holy. Okay, and most people don't get that. They never understand that. They just never get it. And I, but, but maybe you'll get that. And if you do get it, it'll change your life. It'll give you great liberty. It'll give you great joy in giving and it'll give you great joy in spending. You go like, man, I tithe. I'm going to Nordstrom's. <laughs> I'm just joyfully spending money here. Because what kind of money is it? It's holy money. It's excellent. It's holy money. Okay, all right, so there we go. Now, th- this principle of first fruits is what Paul's using here. And he's referring it to Christ and the remnant. Christ himself is, of course, chosen by God as the first fruits from the dead. And then here's this remnant, including Paul, who are first fruits. What does that say about the rest of Israel? The rest of Israel is still what? Holy. So has God rejected his people? No. So then, verse 17. Um, if the root's holy, the branches are too. If some of the branches are broken off and you, he's talking to the Gentiles, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, don't be arrogant toward the branches. If you are arrogant, 